You are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit Win Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global marketing lead at Win by night and product manager and university level faculty by day. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another week of the Win Win Podcast. Today's guest is a huge inspiration for me, and that is Nina Foratan, who is Director of Product Development at Forbes. Nina's truly a woman's champion, a champion of product, a champion of innovation, and you can see how invested she is not in just Forbes' success, but in the success of the industry as a whole. We touch on subjects along the lines of competition, growth, as well as what development in the fields of innovation and product looks like. Most of my guests tend to talk about how their trajectory hasn't been linear thus far, but something else to consider is what is the next chapter of leadership and senior level management in the innovation industry. And that's a topic that we as women in innovation are trying to tackle with our Win Relay cohort programming for women with 12 to 15 years of experience, as well as our other offerings. And then, of course, it's a subject that Nina and I dive into also. Media has played such a significant role in our lives and is an industry that is continuously evolving. And the way that we consume information, in my opinion, is up for debate and up for discussion. I was able to catch Nina in a really interesting time in Forbes' history as the company is preparing to go public via SPAC, which opens up a whole new world of opportunities and challenges. I hope that you enjoy our conversation and check out the work that Nina is doing in the innovation space as well as with her product lab, another initiative that is focused on women's professional development in STEM, innovation, and product. Enjoy! Hi, Nina. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Hi, Zoya. It's so great to be here and um, speak with you today. Yes, it's been a long time coming and you're such an impressive product leader. So I'm really excited to pick your brain about all things product, innovation, and of course, Forbes. So, you know, I've had several leaders in the product management space here on the podcast. And I, I think one thing that's very clear is that product management doesn't typically have a direct path to get there. I mean, sure, if you have a technical background or a business MBA background or a design background, you're at more of an advantage. But nevertheless, everyone has their own long-winded road of getting into product. So what would you say was your entry door into product and how had your pre-product background prepared you for your current role today? I always wanted something like product to exist. And unfortunately, when I was going through my college years, product wasn't really a major you could take. It wasn't um, even a class that you could take. So it wasn't really a thing for um, non-software engineer or computer programming people. So I started my career in broadcast journalism, and I was really, really invested in understanding how we are communicating out essential information to our communities and then um, you know, nationally and globally. I started out on the content side of my career um, and investing in working at news stations on a local level and then moved to publishing. 
Um, so media has always sort of been my passion. My entryway into product really happened when I was working at an ABC affiliate news station in Boston and the head of the station basically said that news is a business and if you really are invested in helping the media landscape and growing and evolving it, then you should understand how we make money and, and you know how people are investing in it. So that led me to go to grad school. And there's an awesome program um, at Babson College in Boston um, where their MBA program that I, that I joined is really focused on entrepreneurial thought and leadership. So it's about, you know, how do you not only start your own company, but then how do you evolve um, an existing brand and sort of work through um, any blockers or limitations and in innovation um, through entre- entrepreneurial thought and leadership. So that was sort of my first entryway into this product thinking world um, before mm-hmm. I really knew what product was. And so it was sort of like my passion for media and then my understanding of how the media landscape was evolving and what I needed to learn to continue to be effective in that landscape led me to what we now call product. Um, so that's how I now sort of evolved from thinking about just the content side to then, okay, we have the content, but how do we get it out to the audience? Like, what do we need to build um, and optimize? And what insights do we need to get back to make sure that we're reaching our audience and we're, we're also building revenue streams for you know, our advertisers and our partners? A lot of the time people ask me, how do I get into product? And I, and I think that product leaders are hesitant to hire somebody without either product experience or that domain experience, right? So if you feel like you're really passionate about getting into product, I would say if you can work at least in the industry where you want to do product, that's going to bring so, so much to the table as it has, I know, in your career. And and I know that you helped launch Hearst Digital Studios partnership with Verizon, uh, which included launching video first channels across the brand. So, you know, those are all really big companies. And so I'm curious to hear about how you went about approaching innovation in that setting and how one would begin to drive such meaningful change in a large organization. I think the biggest thing is to first understand your organization. There are so many amazing and intelligent and smart people that are working at these companies and have been there for a really long time. So at Forbes, I mean, we have people that are there 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Mm -hmm. And so I think a common mistake is, you know, you go in, you're young, you're new, you're excited, and you're like, I'm going to change everything. I'm going to, you know, like make a change and I'm going to innovate. And those situations tend to be really difficult because A, like you may not really understand the whole history behind why things are the way they are at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and B, you might alienate people that could end up being like your, your very strong allies um, totally. for you. So the biggest thing is to just like take your first three to six months at a company and just learn and ask questions and create relationships. Because the more and more I go through my career, I realize, yes, it's important to be smart. But the people that really do well at, within their organizations are the ones that have strong relationships. They're the ones that people go to for questions. They're the ones that get insight into, you know, what the VP of marketing is thinking about for the next quarter. And that could let lead them to have new ideas for their team um, of how they could help them accomplish some of their goals. So Mm -hmm. I think really like to innovate, you first have to take a minute to understand, you know, what the current landscape is, what the issues are, what the blockers are, and then what, what the goals are of your stakeholders within the company. 
Yeah, I think that's huge. I also think that a lot of the times when you think about innovation, you sometimes have this idea that you're the first person to ever think about it or the first person to do it. And I think that almost avoids the fact that maybe it's been tried before and it's just you know not succeeded. And I think giving that credit to your stakeholders or the people that you're working with and saying, you know, I know that this hasn't worked for you, but maybe if we work on it together, that way it can succeed. So I I totally, totally echo those sentiments. Media has been around forever, you know, and in many ways, in my opinion, at least media and digital media specifically is at its helm in the sense that it plays a more important role in our lives than ever. So what effect does that have on your work? And how do you approach building product at Forbes, a company that's been around for so, so long? Uh, I think the the beautiful thing about Forbes is that it is a brand that's been around for I think 103 years now, and the you know the brand reputation and the legacy is already there. So unlike you know newer organizations where you have to spend time to sort of create um, you know your your space for yourself within a competitive landscape, Forbes has sort of um, already had that been building for many years. And the thing that really allows us to evolve the products um, at Forbes is this idea of open transparency with, you know, the goals and the initiatives from a, from a high company level from the CEO down to the VPs and SVPs, down to the directors and then down to the team members. So we really know at the beginning of every quarter, where are the pain points for all of our stakeholders internally? And where, you know, where can we start to affect some change with the levers that we have to pull? And then on top of that, we're encouraged to really immerse ourselves in, in the industry. So we are, you know, we go to conferences, we have meetups, we host meetups when pre-pandemic we could actually do that in person. And now we're building that virtually. So it's kind of this combination of, of internal knowledge transfer and then external relationship building again. I'm, But, you know, talking to our friends at New York Times and asking them, hey, like, I saw you built your subscription model. What were your pain points? And and having an, you know a closed door conversation where we can collaborate is really really awesome. And uh, it kind of shows that the media and publishing world is very competitive. But um, at the end of the day, it's filled with a lot of people that love media. They love publishing mm-hmm. and they love really providing solutions for their readers. And so I've been able to meet a lot of people that are passionate about what they do at other organizations. And it's really helped clarify some of the things that we could do at Forbes. I think that notion of co-opetition is is largely underestimated. I, I know that here at Women in Innovation, we run a ton of different workshops and programming and cohorts where we see, you know, the heads of different agencies that are going for literally the same business share their tips and share their tricks. And we've only really seen more opportunity come out of that, especially for women who don't traditionally have those same uh, relationships within leadership teams as a lot of the times they're the only you know woman in the room. So really, really surprising actually and exciting to hear that that's something that you are uh, partaking in. I guess we talk a lot about successes on this podcast, but something I, I really think is interesting to discuss is failures. Have you been in a situation where you brought back some sort of product strategy or a roadmap or a proposal and somebody's just completely, you know, disagreed with it. How do you, you know, how do you unpack that? Yeah, I think, you know, in any in any business and any organization, internally you have a limited number of resources and a limited amount of time to get things done. 
Um, and so you're going to have different groups and departments, um, you know, saying that, you know, the things that they are, that's important to them is priority. Um, so you'll always have competing priorities, you know, especially in a more lean environment when you are planning out your next quarter and you already have a long list of things that you need to accomplish from a business level to a just site stability level. Like we just have to do these updates to keep the site stable and reduce tech debt. Uh, then, you know, when you ha- you have a new idea and you're like, where does this fit in and how do I get people to not think that this thing is going to take away from you know their thing? Um, and so it really comes through a couple of things. One is understanding your audience. So when I am pitching to a stakeholder about a new idea or even our chief product officer, I always have to think about like, how, this is not just how it's going to help our team or even just our users, but how can I say this in a way to them that they understand the value that they're getting too. So making sure that you're not having one-sided explanations of solutions, that you're bringing your end user, your stakeholder into the conversation as a partner and not just as someone that has to accept, you know, that this thing is happening. So that's the first part. And then the second part is really compromise. So when you do get that no or that immediate, usually it's a knee-jerk reaction of like, we don't have time for this. This seems, you know, really risky. We don't know. Like my thing is more important. You really want to ask. I mean, it's, it's the five whys that you use in product and you, mm. you use it on your stakeholders, you know, like, well, why do you think that, you know, why are you pushing back on this? Or why do you have thoughts that this is going to be affecting your other business lines? How would you propose we go forward with it? And usually we'll um, propose a test. So it's lightweight. It's usually done in an MVP format. It's not affecting, you know, our other um, priorities that we have. And so usually with a testing experimentation um, lens, uh, we can get things through. And by agreeing on uh, metrics that um, we look to for success. So if we hit these metrics, we all agree that we can release this. And if we don't, then we'll agree we'll move on. So um, I think if you break down actual thing that you're trying to accomplish and you speak the language of your end user or end person that you're presenting to, usually you'll find a, a, a path forward. But what I found is m- most times that stakeholders say no, it's usually out of fear, um, fear that their thing won't get done or fear that um, you know it will affect something that they're working on in some way. So if you can break through that by just having a conversation and asking why, it usually helps get things you know along. And maybe you won't get your whole product you know, out, but maybe you'll get the first step, which I think is a win-win. I also think that notion of fear, sometimes when you are working on the technology side of things, not everyone is as passionate or as knowledgeable as you are in whatever technology or product that you're trying to build. So I've personally found that, you know, really trying to take people along with me and incorporating that educational aspect of whatever innovation I'm trying to implement actually in some ways softens the blow or helps get them on board. A lot of people consider innovation as something that, you know, could be just rethinking a process or adding an an element of, you know, behavioral design or whatever else it may be. And I've had guests come on this podcast and say, if you're not breaking the whole thing and reinventing it, that's not innovation. So curious on which side of the spectrum you're on in terms of that question. And really, do you try to create incremental innovation in your company and, and how? Yeah, I love that. I find that notion of like, you know, 
blow it, blow it up and then like rebuild. I think that's like a total luxury. If you can do that, that's awesome. I think that is a great way to go. But um, unfortunately, you know, not a lot of companies can do that. You know, some of the specialty that I've learned in my MBA program is like, how do you innovate within organizations that cannot do that? Um, You know, when you're working within, you know, a legacy brand or existing um, constraints such as you know, maybe you don't have like a 40-person engineering team dedicated to your product alone. Maybe your entire team is just 40 people of engineers and product. And so in that case, you know, how do you affect innovation? You could probably get done, you know, 10 incremental improvements or one major shift, one, you know, blow it up and rebuild it. So you have to think about what is most impactful for you and your team and the business and your customers. And I, I've found that in, in organizations, especially organizations that are not typically technology companies, but they are now becoming technology companies, they've had to maintain their brand and maintain the consistency of the you know vision that their um, customers are seeing of them and slowly improving it. I mean, we've seen that even Instagram will change their their logo and people freak out. Like it's just like, it's such a knee-jerk thing. So little things for your customers can be really uncomfortable. So um, especially in publishing where you have a voice of your brand, we always want to make sure that whatever we do is staying comfortable for our customers. Um, And so in that way, I mean, I think, um, you know, if you can reinvent completely brand new, that's that's great, but I do think it's a luxury. And for a lot of companies that are trying to evolve, incremental innovations um, are really really effective because you'll look back in a year and say, "Wow, I couldn't, I can't believe where we came from." And it's not only about evolving your product, but it's about evolving the people at your company too, which is not a fast thing. <laughs> if you have right. a company with people that have been there for a long time, um, you know it might take a, a few months to a year or, or more to get them to start thinking in a, in a new way and product thinking, digital digital first thinking. Um, so I think it really depends on your industry. And for publishing, I think in, incremental movements of innovation has been the sort of standard that I've seen. I think that being said, I've seen things like digital assets and cryptocurrency and blockchain really you know, come up. So what are some of the technologies uh, or trends that you're excited about and maybe even hope to bring to the Forbes experience or media as a whole? Yeah, we are, you know, media companies are not just writing about, you know, breaking news or, or long form news articles anymore or, you know, exposés. They are really transforming with the power of data led platform strategies and we, you know, we've seen it across Bloomberg, New York Times, Washington Post, The Economist. They're all thinking about ways to capture their audience and also really looking at their audience. Forbes, traditionally, you might think there ha- is like one specific type of Forbes reader. I mean, if off the top of your head, you would think it would be, you know, probably like a white male in his mid-30s who's mm-hmm. in finance, right? Like that's like kind of what you would think. But we have such a diverse audience of women, of older women. We have a gaming audience. We have a huge crypto and digital asset audience. Um, so a lot of practical news as a service content as well, um, along with our CMOs and CEOs and CFOs. Um, but I think, you know, we're really looking more to our customers to inform what we should be building, which is uh, really refreshing because I think 
being able to, as a product person, go and give insights back to our various stakeholders on, hey, like we're building user personas and we're seeing that there's 30 different types of user personas that we're identifying and there's probably more. How can we use this to um, better engage them on the site is really exciting and powerful for us as a product team because we're really adding value to our editorial team and also, you know, our sales and marketing and revenue team. So, um, you know, looking a little bit deeper at our customer base is something that, um, that all media publishers would probably have to do too once you're also launching you know, any subscription business. And so now that as somebody who's considering the bigger picture and someone who's not just overseeing a suite of products or one product, but also overseeing other product managers and innovation leaders in your organization, I'm sure you have some great tips for someone who's an individual contributor and is really looking of that next innovation or product role. So how would you describe your trajectory of getting more senior in product? What does it mean? And what were some signs that you were really ready for that next role? I think um, a lot of people are looking for sort of that answer in their product careers. Um, And it really comes down to the question of, do you want to continue building products? Are you really interested and excited by being on the ground with your team and figuring out the technical implications of building a product and doing the data analytics and building PRDs and um, wireframes? Like, do you love that aspect of product? Or are you more and more interested in developing other product um, members of your organization and really being a manager, which are two very different things. And I sort of naturally gravitate to the people side of things. I love interacting and learning and and helping and mentoring anyone that really reaches out to me that needs help. So I've always been drawn to that. And so I naturally, you know, moved into that sort of role of, being a director, building out a team, and helping to grow my team. Um, not only grow them within my company, but also grow them in their career in general. It, whether it's you know presentation skills or wanting to understand how you meet other people at other publishers that you can network with. I'm, I really enjoy that aspect of it. But some people don't love that. And that's a conversation that I also have with my team members when we talk about their trajectory and their growth. You know, I have them do an exercise to sit down and understand, do you want to manage people? It's it's not just helping people through a project, but it's sitting down and having to give difficult feedback. It's sitting down and having to ask, you know, really like specific questions on, you know, how they're doing and and what what they're thinking about and and guiding them. So it is a lot of time and energy and sometimes uncomfortable situations. So, you know, anyone that wants to grow, there I I will hope they know that there's two paths that you can take. One is to grow as a director and lead a team, but the other one is you can still continue to grow within your product role and stay close to the product. Um, and so you just have to figure out what you like most. Um, and where you sort of visualize yourself. And I've seen people that tend to like the product stuff more and want to grow. Um, they usually, a couple of uh, my former um, colleagues, they'll, they'll, they actually left their companies to start their own businesses in product. You know, there's always opportunities for you. So even if you're not that people person, that, you know, manager type, th- that does not mean that you're not going to have growth and success in product. And, you know, with that growth, there's learning to be done on either one of those paths. I know we've spoken a little bit about your MBA, and you also teach at product school, and you've been a featured speaker there and a guest on on their podcast, too. So 
My question is, what role do you think education plays in rising in an innovation or a product career? And for those that are already in a product career as a mid-stage professional, what sort of learning and development do you recommend to get to that senior level? Yeah, I love um, to teach and mentor. So I just actually finished my product school cohort and some of them were actually product managers already um, and they were just trying to get some of that more technical or polished experience from a from a class but as far as you know what you what you should focus on as you grow I think in your more earlier stages as a product leader there's a lot that you can learn from a technical standpoint and not that you need to be a coder by any means but what I found that the product managers that stand out the most are the ones that are a subject matter expert on their products and not just from a consumer customer perspective but also how it's built so they understand the tech systems they understand the web technologies they know how each piece of the of the platform or page talks to each other Um, they know the you know intricacies of it they know um, you know the edge cases and things to be aware of and they have a really close relationship with their engineers and can sort of speak that dialogue and you can get that knowledge by just really asking questions with your engineers and being close to the work when you're in the development cycle, as well as taking, um, there's a ton of web technology um, courses that you can take for not very expensive um, online. And so I think like when you're earlier to mid-stage, I think that knowledge is really important. As you progress more in your career, um, more of the presentation skills, more of the stakeholder management side of things, um, and more of the conflict revo- resolution um, part of the job becomes more and more important because people look to you to problem solve. And so in that regard, I think, you know, taking courses in public speaking at, or, you know, there's a lot of Marty Kagan has a great um, workshop. Google um, actually has a great product workshop that's free, you know, to kind of taking all of these courses and hearing other leaders talk about how they work through complex solutions with their company internally is really, really helpful because the more and more you grow, the more and more you're going to be brought in into issues that you need to solve or difficult conversations with other stakeholders where you're compromising on things. And so if you shy away from that, you're not going to be effective in your job. So I'd say the the education and knowledge that I would focus on as you grow is more of the, you know, the soft skills of how you deal with, you know, people and building your emotional intelligence in, within your organization. Yeah, makes makes a lot of sense. And I think one of the complexities with, you know, rising to the top is we do see a lot less women at the product and innovation leadership table, which is inherently difficult as you are trying to figure out what are those behaviors that you should be modeling. And so I know that you are on the board of Her Product Lab, an organization focused on promoting women in product through events and content. So why is this organization and involvement in gender-driven initiatives important to you? And why is it important to you in the context of a product and innovation leader? It's important to me because I think I, as a woman, you know, as a girl and now a woman growing up, I always was trying to find my place. And I felt like there was no way for me to get to a place of success. There, I've, I saw my male counterparts easily just get jobs and grow. And I'm ne- I'll never forget, I asked a guy friend who was working at a hedge fund, like, how did you get your job? And he said, like, oh, he was in a locker room at a gym and his friend 
worked there and just said that he should work there and he got hired. I was just like, wow, that's so easy for you. <laughs> that was not my trajectory. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow, that must be nice. Um, yeah. You know, and he, he sort of like had all the check boxes, like went to a good school and all that stuff. And I, and I just found that the difference was like the, the confidence that, you know, the male counterparts had because they really never felt like the rejection, I feel, that, mm-hmm. you know, women feel, especially in, you know, finance, especially in STEM careers. And so the second that I felt any sort of confidence or any sort of like, power, I was like, okay, now I'm going to go and I'm going to support everybody, every woman that I meet, every, you know, young, young woman that I meet that's on her path. I'm going to be that person that's like, do it, go for it. And I had a lot of great women role models on my way. I had, um, the, the founders of power to fly, that's awesome platform. It helps women in STEM careers find, find their jobs, find new jobs. Um, but they were like, huge, huge supports to me. And and I would call them and ask, you know, questions about my job and questions about salary asks. And they were just such powerhouses. So I never forgot how it felt to have the support of a female figure in my life. And so the second I felt like I had any sort of power or validity or reputation, I was like, I'm going to go and use this as much as I can. The the fact is, you know, there's some really talented women out there that that are changing the world. And um, it would be silly for companies and organizations to not hire them and not give them their chance to make a difference because they are so amazing. And not only just women, but also, you know, just diversity and inclusion in general. Having diverse voices at the table is what makes innovation. It really is the easy way to innovation. If a company wants to innovate, just hire different types of people. So yeah, it's definitely something I'm passionate about um, because I, I actually think it's a good business decision too. I, I not only right. just the right thing to do. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and I think that a lot of the times you see these like crazy products or ads or things that are in the world out there in the world, and you ask yourself like, how could anybody possibly think this was a good idea? And then when you get to the root of it, you figure out that there was a homogenous team behind that without that, you know, additional perspective. So, you know, I could not agree more with you. Nina, it's been such a pleasure getting to know you and hearing all about you and your trajectory at Forbes. The work you're doing is so incredible. I know Forbes has just recently announced that it's going public. So I'm sure lots of exciting things happening there. So before I let you go, I'd love to ask you, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now? one year from now, and 10 years from now? Wow, that's a great question. I, I really think that, um, you know, for, with Forbes, we're on sort of the precipice of a new, not era, but just a new world for us. Um, we have, Forbes has been such a strong brand for so many years. It was a family-owned brand. It still has, you know, elements of of family, you know, within the organization, within the culture. And now I see the opportunity to continue to leverage the iconic global brand and, you know, their data-led platform strategy to become, you know, the gateway for businesses, entrepreneurs, and consumers to really join in on conversations and participate in trends that are shaping the world today. Um, so I really see us in the future driving towards more of a global audience and leveraging the platforms that we have already built and the new platforms that we'll be building um, in different industries to really provide a space where um, everybody can you know, join together and, and participate in our trans- transformation with us. 
And so I know that's pretty vague, but, um, mm-hmm. but I just know that, you know, there's so much opportunity for us to continue to grow from where we are. And so not really just not change where we are, but, but really just expand our reach and the, the opportunities to connect with our, with our readers and consumers. Yeah, so all very, very exciting. Thank you so, so much for coming on today, Nina. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been amazing, Zoya. Thanks for everything. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.